Bibles with you, you can turn over to Colossians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today, uh, Colossians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be spending our time. So we are, as I mentioned during announcements, we're going to be back in our Advent series today that we titled Arrival, and we called it Arrival because that's what Advent is, right? The Advent season is a season for us to celebrate and look forward to the arrival of Jesus. That's what we celebrate each and every year at Christmas, and so we want to we wanna incline our hearts and tune our hearts to, to worship Jesus uh, at this time of year. And it can be a distracting time of year. That's what we've been talking about. Uh, that's what Cody's been talking about throughout this series. That this can be a very distracting time of year. Do you need me? <laughs> okay, hold on one second. I think I'm back on. All right, there we go. It's that day. It's that day here. So this is the day that the Lord has made, right? So we can rejoice and be glad in it. Um, so it's just that. It's just that day. So we'll get through it together. No, no, no harm, no foul. Um, so as we've been talking about, this is a, a season where we celebrate the arrival of Jesus. That's what Advent means, and that's why we titled this sermon "Arrival" or this sermon series "Arrival." And so we're, we're, it can be easy for us to become distracted, right? It's that time of year where there's just a lot of things going on. We've got holiday parties. We've got family obligations. We've got friends and, and loved ones that we want to see, that we want to spend time with. And we can get spread pretty thin in all of that sometimes. And, and it's real easy to start to lose sight of, of what we're actually supposed to be doing, right, at, at Christmas time, what we're supposed to actually be focusing on. It can become really, really easy to become distracted. And it's not that those things are inherently bad, right? As, as all things uh, uh, in this world, right? They're not inherently bad in general, but we can, we can make them um, become the thing, right? And when they become the thing, then they become idolatry, right? When they become the thing, then they take the place of the most important thing in our lives, which is God, or should be God. And so we can, we can just become distracted. And so, as I was thinking about this, this sermon, I thought, you know, what, what are some of the ways in which we become distracted? And of course, me being the, the nerd that I am, I, I nerded out on it and I started doing some research. And I found something very, very interesting that I want to share with you this morning that I think will drive this point home. The National Retail Federation, which is, you know, it's the National Retail Federation. I'm not sure exactly what all they do, but it's National Retail Federation. You can kind of put those things together and figure it out. They estimate that Americans will spend around $950 billion, that's billion with a B, $950 billion on gifts this holiday season. Let that sink in for a second. $950 billion. That's almost a trillion dollars that we will spend as a country just on gifts alone this holiday season. That doesn't include all the money we spend on decorations and food and parties and everything else that we do, trees and lights and all that stuff. That stuff. So I want to put that in perspective because you're like, well, that sounds like a lot of money, but let me put it into perspective for you. So that's nearly three times what we spend annually on prescription drugs. And we know how many prescription drugs we use in this country, 
everybody is medicated in some way, shape, or form. High blood pressure, cholesterol, anxiety, what, you name it, we're taking medications for it. That's nearly three times what we spend annually on prescription drugs. It's over three times what we spend on dining out. And we all know we, we love our, our post-Sunday morning sermon Mexican, right? So nearly three times what we spend on dining out. And this is the one that will really, will really uh, drive the point home. It's 19 times what we give or donate to churches and charitable organizations annually. 19x. And so I'm not telling you that to like make you feel guilty so that you'll give more money to the journey this year. That's not, that's not my point. But it, it is telling, right? It is telling about how our culture views Christmas and what we emphasize in the Christmas season. And sadly, it's probably not really a surprise to any of us, is it? Is that a surprise to you to hear that? It's probably not. It wasn't surprising to me. When I went looking for that information, that's kind of what I expected to find. You see, Jesus may be the reason for the season, but he's not much of a focal point in our culture. For many people, the overwhelming majority of people that will celebrate Christmas this year, the overwhelming majority, Jesus may be the, the reason for the season. We, that may be the, what we put on our Christmas cards, but it's not really the focal point. For most, for most people. And I think it's important for us as believers that we take time out to, to kind of reorient our hearts and minds at this time of year, right? Because as, as Christians, as believers, as those who profess to follow Christ, that profess to, to be um, Christ's people, we should be different from the culture. We should look different. We should think different. We should act different. We should prioritize different things. And I think probably more often than not, we're guilty of getting sucked in to the cultural Christmas, right? I mean, it's easy. It's fun. It, it, it feels good. It's, 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 it's energizing. It's exciting. I mean, I love it too. I love to go out and just the, the feeling of Christmas time, the cool air and the, the pretty lights and the trees and just all those things that, I mean, it's just, it's just an enjoyable time. It just makes you feel good. It's a hopeful time. It's a time when people just t tend to feel good. Hopefully they treat each other a little bit better. I mean, there's just so many things that happen at Christmas time that, that we like and, and that make us feel good. And they're not bad things, right? Again, they're not bad things, but when they become the thing, when they take priority over everything else, then, then we're just, we're out of alignment. We're out of whack and things start to go off the rails. And so as Christians, it's, it's a good time for us to reorient our hearts and minds. And that's what we've been trying to do in this sermon series is just take time to look at what the Bible says about Jesus' arrival and, and why this should be a time of hope for us. We can easily get caught up in the worldly and the cultural Christmas. So this week, we've been doing it really every week, but this week we're going to focus in even a little bit more on specifically who Jesus is. So we're going to be, again, I mentioned Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking specifically at kind of who Jesus is. And then we're going, to, we're going to look at what he's done and what he's doing for us. And we're going to look at why um, we have every reason in the world to, to celebrate and be joyful and celebrate him this holiday season. Even without the trees, even without the lights, even without the, 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 the family meals and the, and the presents and all of those other things, like, if we take and strip all of that away, we still have reason to be joyful and hopeful this holiday season because we have Jesus as our Savior. So we're going to look at the first, we're going to um, 
start in verse 15, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 20 to get us started today. In Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes, He, this is talking about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." So that's a, that's, a weighty, that's a weighty piece of scripture right there. I mean, there's a lot of different things we could talk about as we dig into that piece of scripture. There's a lot of deep theological truths in there. There's just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of weight in that passage. And we're going to look at a couple of different points that Paul makes for us. And the first one that I think we need to see is, it comes right there in the beginning of verse 15. The first thing that we need to see is that Jesus is God, right? We've talked about this before, we've talked about this even in this series, but Jesus is God. That's the, the starting point that we need to start at because that's really the most important point of all uh, in this whole passage. This, that's the thing that we really need to get if we miss everything else. It's that Jesus is God. And Paul uses the word there, image. And in the Greek, that word is, is, is icon. And that might sound a little bit familiar, right? Icon, because that's where we get our English word icon. And, and really what it literally means is, is like a statue. So when we think about an icon, right, like we think of like on our, on our money, on our coins, right, we've got faces of, of presidents and, his, and famous American historical figures. And we've, if you go to, to places that are, are rich in history, there's statues of, of famous Americans that, that have, have done things that we remember and celebrate here in our country, um, you know, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and these, these people from our country that we celebrate. That's, what, that's kind of what the Greek is conveying there. That like when we look at, I've never met Abraham Lincoln, right? He was gone well before I, uh, I was ever born. But I can go to Washington, D.C., and I can go to the Lincoln Memorial, and there's a statue of Abraham Lincoln there. And I can look at that statue, and I can kind of see Abraham Lincoln, right? And it makes me think about the things that Abraham Lincoln is, is remembered for and why we celebrate him in this country. And that's what the Greek is really conveying there. When it talks about Jesus being the image of God, he's a, an exact representation of God for us. Paul refers to God here as the invisible God because God is a spiritual being. And what we know about the spiritual realm is that we can't see it, we can't touch it, we don't get to interact with it in tangible ways, right? Like, I can't, I can't reach out and, and touch God right now, right? Because he's a spirit. But, but, but the spiritual realm was made manifest in Jesus, right? So when we want to know about God, when we want to learn things about God, we can look to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. But you see, even before Jesus took on flesh in the incarnation, God manifests himself to his people in many, many ways we see throughout the Old Testament. It's not new for God to, to manifest himself to his people. 
We see it time and time again in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. In the Garden of Eden, we see that God came and he walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden. We see God manifesting himself in a tangible way in the burning bush to Moses. We see him manifesting himself in, t- in tangible ways to his people as the pillar of, of smoke and fire during the Exodus. We see him manifesting himself in the cloud on Mount Sinai. We see him manifesting himself oftentimes even in a a human physical form throughout the Old Testament to Abraham and, and Jacob and Moses and Joshua, among others. So we see that this is nothing new, right, that, that God has, has manifest himself at many times throughout the scriptures uh, in, in tangible ways. We call these manifestations theophanies, and that's just a, a, a big word that, that comes from the Greek word um, theos, which means God, and the Greek verb, which means to appear. So a, 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 an appearance of God, a physical manifestation of God in a tangible way is, is, is referred to as a theophany. And the fullest manifestation of God to his people came in the form of Jesus, right? That Jesus took on flesh. He was the God-man. He was God in the flesh. He came and walked among his people. He came and and lived among his people. He came and experienced um, what it means to be fully human. And at the same time, he was still fully God. So what Paul is saying here in verse 15 is that when we want to see God, we look to Jesus. He is our representation of God. But Jesus doesn't just image God, um, God's physical features. Rather, he images his nature, his character, um, and his power because Jesus is fully and completely God. So, so he doesn't manifest God's physical nature because God is a spiritual being, but rather he manifests and, and, and represents God in his nature, his character, and his power. He is fully and completely God. You see, man was also created in the image of God. We learn that in the scriptures, that we as human beings are created in the image of God. And again, what that means is it doesn't mean that we look like God because God is a spiritual being. But what it means is that we have characteristics of God, right? The ability to think and feel and make decisions and, and, and express emotions and all of these things are ways in which we image God. But that image in us is, is marred by sin, right? Sin has disfigured that image in us. The image still remains. It hasn't completely erased it, but it has, it has marred it. It has distorted it in many ways. And so when we look at Jesus, we see this, this perfect representation of, of how God has, has created us to image himself in the human form. We see Jesus do that perfectly. We were created to represent God's, God's image in his creation, and Jesus is that perfect representation. He does it. He represents God's perfection perfectly. There is no flaw in him. The New Testament authors go to great lengths to communicate to us that Jesus is God, explicitly and clearly throughout the scriptures. This is the linchpin and foundation of our faith, isn't it? Like, if we take that out, if we remove the fact that Jesus is God, if we put, if we if we cast doubt on that, if we, if we say we don't believe that, then everything else crumbles and falls. The entirety of our faith is built on that reality. The reason that Jesus is able to accomplish the things that he is able to accomplish, the reason that we are able to hope in the promises that he makes to us and the, and the things that he's done on our behalf is because he is God. 
And as God, he is almighty, which means he has all the power necessary and required to accomplish those things. And he knows all things, and he sees all things, and he is, he is good in every way. All of those things are, are the linchpin of our faith. If we take those out, then everything else falls apart. I think anybody that, that professes to be a Christian but says they don't believe that Jesus is God, and, and I, I'm not sure if you recall, but back during our foundation series, I shared some statistics with you, and it was quite overwhelming how many people that profess to be Christian don't believe fundamental and foundational realities of the Christian faith. And, and, it's, and, and yet they, they would profess to be Christians. And what that means is that there's a lot of people sitting in pews around the world today, hearing sermons and, and, and going through the motions of, of cultural Christianity that don't actually know the Lord in a saving way. And that, that's just heartbreaking and terrifying to me. I've talked about this before, but that passage in Matthew 7 when, when people come before God and they say, we did these things in your name and, and, and you know, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name. We did all these things in your name. And, and, and Jesus says, depart from me. You, I never knew you. Um, that's just like, that's the heartbeat of ministry to me because it's just terrifying to me that there's people sitting in churches. There could be people sitting here right now that have bought into some version of the gospel that's not real, that's not true. They don't believe these fundamental and foundational truths of, of what the scriptures teach us. And, and they believe things that, that are easy believism and, and, and cultural Christianity. And, and they're going to come to a time where they're going to stand before Jesus, who they thought was their Lord and Savior, and find out that he doesn't know them. And that's terrifying to me and heartbreaking to me. And that's just the, the heartbeat of, of really everything um, that drives me in ministry. And, and, and so when, when we find Christians and we find believers that, that, that say they're Christians, that, that think because they put up a Christmas tree and because they go to church on Christmas and, and Easter and because they give presents and, and these things that, that, um, that really have nothing to do with our faith, uh, they believe that they're, they're Christians. And that's just, that's just scary for me. But if Jesus is God, and God we know is eternal, then why does Paul call him the firstborn of all creation? That's one of those things where if you're like, you're reading through this and you come across that, it, it might be one of these things that's like, that, that's confusing. What does, that, what does that mean? Why or how is he the firstborn of all creation? Here's what that doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean that Jesus is a created being. There's a lot of confusion sometimes that, that goes around that, right? Where we have this, this idea of like, the Old Testament is God the Father, and he's doing all these things. And then we get to the New Testament, and it's like Jesus is there, and, and now he's doing some stuff. And then eventually we see the Holy Spirit is around, and he's doing some stuff. And, and there's like this idea that like when Jesus was born in the manger, that, that, like he, that was the beginning of Jesus, right? Well, it was the beginning of, of earthly incarnate Jesus in the flesh, but Jesus as God is, is eternal. The Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit is eternal. Each equally, co-equally God, equal in power and nature and all of the things, all of the essence that makes up who God is, they're equal in all of those things. And so in his, in his incarnation, he was born in the flesh in the form of a baby, hence the reason we celebrate Christmas. But while his human body was born, his spirit is eternally uncreated. So Paul's not saying there that Jesus is a created being. 
What he is saying is that Jesus as God incarnate has the status of the firstborn in God's creation and in his family. And so in ancient times in particular, I mean, it's still true today, like, uh, you know, if you died without a will, uh, you know, your, your inheritance would, would, you would, they would look to your firstborn to, to handle your inheritance and things like that. So even today in our culture, the firstborn has some status. But in ancient cultures, the firstborn was, was incredibly important. To be the firstborn in a family carried a lot of weight. Um, it, it, the firstborn in the family in ancient times was a vitally important in family leadership. Um, if the father died or became incapacitated in some way, the firstborn would be looked to to lead the family in the father's stead. They were viewed as the strongest or the best of the children. So if you remember when um, the prophet um, Samuel came and, and came to David's family, and he came to, to Jesse and, and he was looking for the, the next king of Israel, it started with the oldest brother, right? And Samuel said, no, it's not him. And next brother, no, it's not him. All the way down the line. And he gets the, he's like, he gets the end, and he's like, I, I know this is where I'm supposed to be. I know the king is here. Do you have any more sons? And they're like, oh, yeah, we've got David, the youngest. He's, we didn't even bother calling him in. He's out in the field with the sheep. And so, you know, they bring him in, and they say, oh, he's, he's, the, he's the king. He's the one. But they started with the firstborn, right? Because the firstborn is always viewed as the strongest or the most important, the best of the children. They're the ones that opened the womb, so they just have this, this air about them that makes them special. They also received a double portion of the inheritance. So if, 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 as a father, if I were to die um, in ancient times, then my firstborn would receive a double portion of the inheritance, particularly the firstborn son was even more emphasized. Sorry, Kaylin, you're out of luck. Um, Cooper, you'd be, Cooper, see, Cooper always hates to be in the middle child, but you're the firstborn son, so you get all the money. <laughs> well, you, you get the, the piddly little bit of money that's left over. Um, so Paul is referring here to Jesus' preeminence, right? That's what he's getting at. If you look at the, the beginning part of this, of, this, uh, of this section of Scripture, if you look at the little heading, it's probably in your Bibles. If you have the ESV, it says the preeminence of Christ. That's what that's what Paul is talking about here, that Jesus is preeminent. And what that word just means is that Jesus is superior, that he's above all else, that he is, as the firstborn of all creation, he is above everything else. Everything, he's the king of kings, the lord of lords, everything falls under his authority. To put it succinctly, Jesus is a big deal, right? Jesus could say, I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of a big deal, right? Jesus is the one that can say that. So our celebration of Jesus on, on every occasion is worthy, right? He's worthy to be celebrated on every occasion, but surely at Christmas, he should be the first and foremost in our minds. Our Christmas celebration should be first and foremost a, a worship experience. It should be worshipful. We should be worshiping Jesus as God. The primary reason that we celebrate Christmas is to worship Jesus as our Lord. The second thing that we see in this, in this section of scripture is that Jesus is the creator, and we see that in verse 16. You see, one of God's primary acts is creation. Like, one of the primary things that God does, at least in, in terms of, of human understanding of God, is that God is our creator. Everything material and immaterial in this universe, physical and spiritual, 
finds its source of existence in God. God himself is the only thing that is uncreated. Everything else that is only is because God has created it by his power and by his word. He's the source of all existence. All life and being finds its source in God, but also all things like knowledge, emotion, purpose, and power, authority. All of these things find their purpose and their existence and their being in God. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the reason that this universe, this world, and everything in it exists is because of God. Everything finds its source in God. There's not a whole lot I can really add beyond that. I mean, I think we, we get that. We see that so clearly in scriptures. We've talked about it time and time again. But God is our creator. And as our creator, he has the authority over us, right? So I've, I've used this example before, but if I'm an inventor and I invent a machine, I'm the one as its creator that, that can tell everybody what that machine's supposed to do, you know, what it's supposed to be used for, how it operates. I'm the one that's, the, that's best suited to give instructions on how it should function because I'm the one that created it. I'm the creator. And so God as our creator has the authority over his creation. But Paul does highlight one very important implication that I think is derived from this foundational truth of God as the creator. You see, God as the creator doesn't create in an abstract sense. And what I mean is like, if you think about like an abstract artist, right, where they like throw a bunch of paint at the wall and kind of as it splatters, then they, they, that's what they've created and they put it up there and then everybody comes and looks at it and one person looks at it and says, I see this. And another person looks at it and says, I see that. God doesn't create in that way. He's not, he's not, his creation isn't abstract in that it's not open to interpretation. Rather, God brings order to and governs his creation. His act of creation is always purposeful. He always is doing something in creating. And that's really, really, really vitally important for us to understand, I think, because um, especially for the way we think about like human life and existence and our own lives, right? That we have purpose and meaning um, and that God created us for a purpose. And so one of the means that God uses to govern his creation is by granting authority to human agencies, right? People, um, organizations, governments, things like that. God grants authority to these things. And, and whether they use that authority um, to, to, to achieve God's purposes, like by acknowledging him or being obedient to him, or to achieve his purposes by being disobedient, all of the authority that exists in this world is a gift from God to bring order to the chaos. And I think, you know, I don't want to get like too overly political and off track here, but I think that's important for us to think about as we think about how we interact with our, our culture and our government and the authorities that are placed over us. So we have, every one of us has authorities that are placed over us. Of course, we live in a country that has a government that is an authority over us. We work for employers that are authorities over us, or we go to school where there's teachers that are authorities over us, or we, all of us are children, right, who have parents who are authorities over us, no matter how old we get, right? So God created um, and brought order out of the chaos by, by putting and giving authority to people and agencies and organizations and things. And all of these things um, are, are, 
are created and given to us as gifts from God to bring order out of the chaos. And so I, I just think it's important. I couldn't just like, like blow by that without touching on it because I think it is something that's important. It doesn't really have anything to do to, with Christmas, so I will get back on track. But I just felt like you just can't glance past something like that when you come upon it in Scripture. So back to Christmas. There is something, though, that happens a lot of times in the New Testament that I often think confuses us, and I think we see an example of it here. You see, the New Testament authors regularly attribute Old Testament acts of God to Jesus. So in this case, we read in Genesis how God created everything. And here Paul is saying that that was Jesus. And we see this throughout the New Testament. Paul does it several times. Um, Jude does it, where, where he gives... Uh, um, uh, credit to Jesus as leading the people during the Exodus, things like that. So we see this all the time in, in the New Testament. I think there's several ways where we can look at that. I think we can look at it in, in the basic, in the most basic sense where we say, okay, well, yeah, right, Jesus is part of the Trinity, so he's God, and, and so sure, right? Like, okay, yeah, he's part of the Godhead, and so, yeah, sure, he was, he was, he was present, he was doing these things. Or maybe this is just another case of Paul and others trying to highlight the importance of Jesus, like, like the firstborn of all creation, right? It's a, another way for him to highlight the importance of Jesus. That's, that's another way that we can look at it. Or we can look at it as God is revealing to us through these human authors writing under the inspiration of the Spirit more of himself. And I think that's really the best place for us to land. I mean, those other two things are true as well. But I think it's important for us to recognize that, that God has given us his word to reveal himself, right? That's the purpose of the scriptures, to reveal more and more of God to us. And so and it's a progressive revelation, right? God didn't just reveal everything at once. Jesus came at a specific period of time, a specific just dot on the map, right? Those 33 years of Jesus' life is just a small dot on the map, but it has such a huge influence on our lives because God did a lot in those 33 years. But, but I think it's important for us to understand and see that, that, that God's revelation to us is, is progressive in nature. And so as we engage with the scriptures, right, we see more and more and more, and we can learn more and more and more about Jesus and the way that Jesus has, has not just come on this, the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry and importance isn't just wrapped up in 33 years on the, on the timeline of human history, but rather Jesus' importance is eternally significant to us, right? From, from beyond creation to beyond creation, right? The alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, Jesus is vitally important to us. The pre-incarnate Jesus along with the Spirit is not just present as a member of the Trinity, but he is also active in the Old Testament as well. This is just another way that Paul is driving home the point that Jesus is God, eternal, eternally God. The universe isn't just created by the power of Jesus through him, but also one of the primary purposes of creation is to magnify and glorify Christ. Everything was created for him. So again, Christmas is a time for us to worship Jesus as our creator. Jesus isn't just an absentee landlord, though. He sustains all things. We see this in verse 17. So he didn't just create us and then abandon us, but rather he, he cares for us. He intercedes for us. 
He's actively working even right now on our behalf, redeeming us, restoring us, representing us in heaven to the Father. We see in verse 18 that Jesus establishes a people for himself. Again, we see here that he is the firstborn from the dead. So by his death and resurrection, Jesus has opened the way for all of us to be reconciled to God. And again, we see this in verse 20 where Jesus reconciles us to God. He restores the relationship between God and mankind that was fractured by sin. Jesus is the answer to the problem of sin. And we see Paul continue in verses 21 through 23 to to expand on this idea of Jesus as the problem to the answer of sin. So let's look at it together. Starting again in verse 21, he says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, God would still be God without the incarnation. That's important for us to, to recognize. Like, like, he would still be the creator, he would still have all, he would still be Lord and have all the authority and power, he would still sustain and hold all things together by his power, he would still be perfect and holy and almighty, etc., etc., and, he would, and we would still be alienated from him, right? Sin has separated us from God. It has put a, a great chasm between us and God. And, and God would still be God, but we would still be alienated from him by our sin. None of that diminishes who God is. But the reason we celebrate the incarnation, the reason we celebrate Christmas is because Jesus is our Savior. There's a lot of Christmas stories we tell this time of year. We tell the story of Santa Claus bringing presents to all the good little boys and girls. We tell the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Frosty the Snowman or Buddy the Elf. We tell the story of Kevin McAllister and the Bumbling Crooks. We tell the story of Ralphie Parker and his Red Ryder BB gun. We tell the story of John McClane and Hans Gruber. Yes, it's a Christmas movie. I will fight you. <laughs> But the Christmas story is the story of Jesus. The Christmas story is the story of Jesus. The one we need to tell. The story of God, the creator and Lord of the entire universe. Condescending to take on flesh. Stepping down into this world. Taking on flesh. Being born as a baby. The most fragile and helpless form of humanity. That's the Christmas story. The story of Christmas is the story of a baby living among his people, right? Walking with them, talking with them, growing in stature and power, teaching them, shepherding them, weeping with them and for them, healing them, confronting and correcting them, and then finally laying down his life for them so that they, so that we might be reconciled to God. Sin separates us from God. We see that clearly in verse 21. When, I, when my kids were little, we used to do these um, you know, little devotional things with them. And one of the ones that I, I always remember was, was where I was trying to illustrate for them um, how sin separates us from God. And so what I did is I went to the top of, we had a stairway in our home in Virginia. I went to the top of that stairway 
and I said to my kids, I said, I'm up here, you're down there, get to me uh, without stepping on the stairs, right? Get to me without stepping on the stairs. How do you get to where I am without stepping on the stairs? And of course, you know, they, they were trying to figure it out. Owen was pretty little, he probably doesn't remember this. One of them, I, probably Cooper, it would, it would probably be Cooper, was trying to like Spider-Man style scale the wall, like they're, you know, step on the baseboard and trying to figure out a way to get up there, but they couldn't get to me. And so what I did then was I came down the stairs, right? I came down the stairs to where they are, and I picked them up and I carried them up the stairs to, to the top to be with me. That's the picture of what Jesus did for us, right? He came down the stairs. He came to where we are and he, he brought us to himself. He reconciled us to God. You see, there's no amount of work or effort that can ever fix that problem. There was no way that my kids were going to get to the top of that stairway if I didn't intercede for them, if I didn't come to where they were. Moreover, we don't even, apart from Christ renewing our hearts and minds, even desire to, to be reconciled. We see that here in, again in verse 21, right? That we're hostile in mind. That we're alienated from God, not just separated from him, but rather that we're alienated from him as in we're enemies of God. We're hostile towards him and all the things that he represents. We don't sin, uh, we, we're not sinners because we sin, rather we sin because we are sinners in our nature. It's who we are. We have a sinful nature. You see, the problem of sin must be dealt with and the debt we've accumulated must be paid. God is a perfectly good and holy and just judge. Can't just simply look past our sin. He can't simply sweep it under the rug or, or put it away in a closet so it's out of sight and mind, but rather it has to be dealt with. The penalty for sin had to be paid, and that penalty is death. And not just any death could pay the debt for sin. That's why the sacrificial system was only a foreshadow of what Jesus would ultimately do on the cross, right? The, 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 the Jews had to continually bring sacrifices to the temple because there was no sacrifice that was sufficient to pay the debt once and for all for sin. So week after week, they had to bring more and more sacrifices and shed more and more blood to pay the debt for their sin. See, Jesus' righteous death was the payment for sin. The only sacrifice worthy for God is God himself, is a sacrifice that God himself provides in the form of Jesus. The sacrificial system, again, was a foreshadow of that. So not only is Christ our Savior, but he is also our Redeemer. You see, we are made and being made in this already but not yet sense. We are being made and transformed into his image, made righteous by the sacrifice of Christ and the power of his spirit. We are being redeemed and restored. He took upon himself our shame. He took upon himself our debt. And he gives us in exchange his righteousness. This is as the, the theologian and reformer Martin Luther calls the great exchange. So that when we stand in judgment, we're judged not based on our own merits, but rather judged based on the perfection and righteousness of Christ. His blood covers our sins in a very real and literal way. You see, the greatest Christmas gift that has ever been given was given on the night that Jesus was born. The night that God entered into humanity to save his people. This is why we celebrate Christmas. And $950 billion can't compare to the immeasurable wealth that we have been given in Christ. So my prayer for us this holiday season 
is that we would remember the true gift that really matters this holiday season and that we would joyfully give that gift to others, that we would joyfully share the gift that we've been given with others, that we would tell them the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel, the story of Christmas, and that many will receive the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ this holiday season. Let us celebrate that gift together and worship the giver as we go into a time of communion together. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, just for the gift. Lord, as we celebrate Christmas, so often gifts become the, the focal point. And I, I, I know how much I love to, to give and receive gifts this time of year. It, it's, it's just a, a fun thing, Lord. But those gifts... The, the reason we started giving gifts at Christmas time, it's, a, it's a, 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 a means to remember you, Lord, that you gave us a gift on the very first Christmas, the greatest gift that has ever been given by stepping off your throne and into your creation, Lord, to redeem us to yourselves, to yourself. We just thank you so much for that gift. We pray that our, our hearts and minds would be inclined towards that gift this holiday season. And we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to share it with others, joyfully, uh, just abundantly, uh, so that others might know the hope of your gospel in a true and saving way. So that when they eventually come and stand before you in judgment, you won't say, depart from me, but rather you will welcome them in to your open and loving arms. And that's our prayer this Christmas season. Amen. <music>